0: Welcome, friends, to another edition of Truth to Power with me, Justin Mogg, your uh, guest programmer for the day here on Truth to Power Forward Radio WFMP. Well, what I want to do today here on Truth to Power is bring you something very special and very important. Root Cause Research Center is a fantastic organization in our community that has just does amazing community organizing work across all sectors of our community and uh, even works around the state in solidarity with all kinds of great groups. And on February 26th, they held their second annual Community Research Expo online. And boy, I want to tell you, I was blown away by all of the presentations. And so I want to share with you here on Truth to Power, where we're all about community conversations you won't hear Anywhere else on the media, and certainly what you're going to hear today, you won't hear anywhere else either. So I'm going to bring this uh, great two-hour program to you in two parts, and we're going to start this week. Uh, by hearing the first half of the program, including the amazing keynote, which you won't want to miss. This is such good radio, and we're going to share with you the entire keynote. And uh, the keynote this year uh, was Jerome Scott, a founding member of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers Uh, And then we're going to hear from uh, the youngest member of the Louisville Metro Council and one of the newest as well, Ja'Cory Arthur. And then we're going to hear from some folks at the Bedford County, Tennessee Listening Project, folks from Clothe the West and Historically Black Neighborhoods Assembly, uh, folks working against the West and TIFF, as well as uh, some organizers with no LMPD campaign and the PSL Marxist Leninist Party, as well as some, we'll wrap it up with some movement lawyers at the end. This is all such great content, you guys. Stay tuned right here on Truth to Power. You are going to really enjoy this here on Forward Radio.
1: Hello and welcome to the second annual Community Research Expo. My name is Jessica Bellamy, and my colleague Josh Poe and I started the the Root Calls Research Center in January of 2020. Our team at the Root Cause Research Center are researchers and tenant organizers. We believe in class struggle as a theory of change and organize at the intersection of property and policing to build a multiracial base of poor and working class tenants in the United States, specifically the South. We help build structured tenant-led campaigns and produce knowledge and solidarity with communities under threat of displacement, surveillance, and police violence. We also design inventive and interactive visuals that break down complex systems of oppression, that countermap dominant narratives, and that center the perspectives of people surviving at the center of the problem. The Community Research Expo is a community platform and base for radical scholarship that provides an alternative to traditional hierarchical and classist models of research. Where really community members are used more as test subjects than as main researchers or as co investigators of different problems that they're working on. And RCRC, our, our team, the radical scholars of the community research incubator, and our partners work together to produce knowledge and data as an alternative to dehumanizing and inaccessible research that is typically created by state and private institutions. The work created by these brave, remarkable, revolutionary thinkers will shake you awake and will raise you up today. These works were constructed after nine challenging months of collective study, lively discussion, and multiple trips to small town archives. These works were made whole by deep personal conversations about power, place, and struggle. And both projects that you'll see today Are just the tip of the iceberg of what these scholars are building towards. Each year, as scholars return and newcomers take a chance, together we set new standards for ourselves and what we can imagine. Each year builds upon the last, and the work of Joyne Woodard, Woody Pryor, and Mariel Gardner will lift the next movement scientist, the next Rebel intellectual, the next militant bookworm, the next eager learner, so that we can get to that next level, that next level that is the revolution that our people deserve. Finally, it is a great honor that I am able to introduce our keynote speaker, Jerome Scott. Jerome Scott is a member of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. He serves on Move to Men's National Leadership Team and on the National Planning Committee of the U.S. Social Forum. He is active in grassroots global justice and other social justice movement organizations, including the League of Revolutionaries for a New America. He was a founding member and former director of Project South Institute for the Elimination of Poverty and Genocide in Atlanta, Georgia. Jerome has also written numerous chapters and articles on race, class, movement building and the revolutionary process. He is also a contributing editor to four popular education toolkits, including The Roots of Terror and, Global, and Today's Globalization. He was co-recipient of the American Sociological Association's 2004 Award for the Public Understanding of Sociology. Glorious audience, it's my pleasure to introduce Jerome Scott.
2: Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I am really happy to be here with you all today. When I was first asked if I were interested in doing this presentation, and I looked at who was asking at me, the Root Cause Research Center, I thought, damn, I should definitely do this. With a name like that, how could I go wrong? You know, and it also brought, reminded me of uh, organizing in the South back in the late 80s, early 1990s. And you know, I was doing some work in West Alabama Black Belt, around this whole question of absentee voting and how the uh, attack on the voting rights, you know, actually took off at that point in the black belt of Alabama. And I ran into this guy named uh, Albert Turner. And he said to me, you know, when we're dealing with problems like this, there's only one way to go. And that is to get to the root of it. Because if you don't get to the root of the problem, that problem will keep coming back at you just like a bunch of weed. And I thought, damn, that is really a good analogy, because capitalism is like weed. No matter how many times you reform capitalism, it will resurface in an even more reactionary form than it was when you reformed it before. And, you know, I just the best example of that is the attack on voting rights today, which I think really took hold in... West Alabama doing those struggles around absentee ballots, you know, that that's a whole reaction to the Voting Rights Act, you know, and the, the actual bringing into the voting process of these literally millions of Black folks around the country into the voting process. And this attack is being sustained today. You know, so this whole question of getting to the root is not only a good parallel to what we're doing, but it really tells us something. It tells us that If we're gonna be successful, we have got to look at the problems that we're facing today and figure out what their roots are and dig them roots out. And we have certainly enough problems to deal with today. And I just wanna hit on maybe three areas of discussion today. One of course is, you know, the moment that we're living in. And this moment is filled with crises and we'll get into that. The second was is, what are we fighting and how should we be carrying out that fight? And the third, of course, is what is our vision of the future and how do we connect these everyday fights to that vision of the future? Because that's the process which will eventually get us out of this mess. So first of all, I mean, there's a multitude of crises that we're dealing with today, you know, first and foremost, I think is the economic crisis. you know many people are are saying today that we're on the other side of the crises that people are leaving their jobs and who knows what you know and and our wages are being increased. well, all that might be true for a few, but it's definitely not true for the vast majority of the people, particularly southerners and people who live in Appalachia. you know we're not seeing any kind of rebirth of the economy that they're trying to sell us on. The economy is only getting worse. I mean, every institution that we think about in this capitalist society is struggling. And they're struggling not only from the economic crisis, but also that big question that we're all faced with, and that is the climate crisis. You know, there's predictions that we only have about 10 to 12 years to get a handle on this crisis un- until it's unhandleable you know it's out of our reach to control anymore you know an existential crisis which fundamentally all of them are but you got the economic crisis you got the climate crisis then you got the crisis of health care i mean come on we are supposed to be the most advanced society in the world but we can't deal with this pandemic Or are we afraid of dealing with the pandemic will hurt the capitalist system so much that we can't afford to do it that way? But at any rate, this 900,000 people have died in this process and we still haven't figured out how to deal with it. And then, of course, there's the political crisis, you know, the the whole crisis of how are we going to get something done in this country when the supposed two parties are both falling apart from one and struggling with each other. But really, you know, this whole question of whether or not the political system is working in this society is pretty clear to everybody that it is hopelessly broken, you know, and the two party system has proven that it can't function for the benefit of working and poor people throughout this country. And so not only are we dealing with the economic crisis, the crisis of climate, the political crisis and state violence, police is on the wall again. You know, but we're also dealing with this crisis that no one seems to want to talk about, and that is the fundamental transition that we're going through in this capitalist society, you know, in terms of just the way things are produced and distributed. You know, this whole roboticalization and this process of moving from industrial production to electronic production to artificial intelligence influences on production. You know, and what that means is that in the long run, literally millions and millions of workers will not be needed to function in order for this society to be productive in this new world that we're gradually going into. But when you think about how the institutions of this country, I don't care which one you want to talk about, The educational institute, the health institutions of this country, the police institutions of this country, every one of them is in crisis. And they're in crisis because the world is in transition. We're transitioning from that industrial-based society to a more technologically generated society. And what that means is that it brings every institution up for question. Because they can't function during this transition. Everything is weakened. Everything is a little bit off kilter. You know, and we don't talk too much about that because it affects each and every one of these other transitions. But the thing that I think we need to think about, particularly uh, when we're talking about root causes, is what is the root cause of each and every one of these crises? Because that's what we got to get to. You know, I think that that answer is very simple that the root cause of this situation that we're in, in in terms of economic crisis is capitalism. Capitalism demands maximum profit that means maximum exploitation. The climate you know if it's not for the capitalists demanding that they have to have unfettered expansion into nature that eventually releases all these impurities into society that we hadn't counted on and therefore the basis of the, this pandemic and the future pandemic. You know, the political crisis, police violence, how do you keep order when everything is up in the air and everything is in transition? You have to strengthen the police, you have to unleash the police because capitalism and all this new, the struggle to not only make a profit but to maximize your profit meant that you have to get into instituting different technologies in production. And that set the basis for this transition from industrial-based production to computer and technology-based production. You know, so that's, this moment is very, very critical and, and very moving, very much in motion, because we also have, over the last few years, the biggest resistance developing throughout this country. I mean, after the George Floyd murder, You had more demonstrations in this country than we had in the 60s at one time, and more people in motion than we had in the 60s. And that's important because, you know, one of the things that I have lived by most of my life is you will only get what you're organized to take. And if they believe that we're organized to take over this society, then they have to do something very dramatic to try to prevent that. And that's what I think is happening with this next point. What are we fighting immediately today? I know we're fighting capitalism in the long run, but we're also fighting the different forms that capitalism brings before us. And one of the things that we're fighting today is this movement toward fascism. You know, this attack on voting rights, this attack on education and and the so-called critical race theory uh people taking that struggle up and you know there isn't a school system a public school system in the country that teaches critical race theory but you got all these states putting forth these uh proposals to ban critical race theory from their educational curriculum that's all a part of this process to consolidate a fascist base a social base for fascism that's going on in this country. You combine that with the attack on voting and trying to make sure that people's ability to vote is restricted as much as possible, and the increase in police violence and police stack and state violence and state attack throughout this country, you can see that there's this motion and consolidation toward fascism. Now, many times people hear this term fascism, And they're not sure exactly what it means. First of all, fascism is not separate from capitalism. You know, right now we're supposedly living under a state organizational form of so-called democracy, you know, where we have a constitution and supposedly the rule of law is the state of things here. And we all know how that goes. The rule of law is it's a hell of a democracy for rich people, but it's not much of a democracy for the rest of us, that's for sure. But at any rate, we call that democracy. This movement toward fascism is to change that state form of organizing from a so-called democracy to direct fascism. And one of the first things that the fascists do is suspend the Constitution. What that means is that we're talking about moving toward a position where if you lived and grew up in the South, you know this because of the history of the South where the local authorities of the law is the law there is no protection there is no constitution there is no grievance procedure you know that when you suspend the constitution you leave it up to the local authority to institute whatever laws they want to and you know what that means in the South and Appalachia that means some of the most reactionary some of the most brutal actions by the state that you could possibly have and that's what we're moving to it. and Many times I ask myself, is this a Donald Trump notion? And, you know, that's what they're trying to get us to believe. They're trying to get us to believe that fascism is a Donald Trump notion and that if we can just get rid of Donald Trump, we can get rid of fascism. Come on, folks. We already opened this session with saying we live in a class society. I think we live in a class society whose DNA is white supremacy. But what that means is that this motion toward fascism is a class motion. Donald Trump might be at the head of it for the moment, but it's a class motion. There is a certain percentage of the ruling class of this country that sees fascism as their only savior. That's the reason they're trying to move toward consolidating their social base and consolidating this whole movement toward fascism. Because they think, that we're on the thrust of getting organized to take what we want, and they got to prevent that at all costs. And they think fascism is the only way to prevent mm-hmm. uniting that section of the class that can be united, that section of the working class. So that's the reason they're moving toward fascism, not because they want to, but be- because they will do anything to protect their ability to exploit and oppress. Because in a capitalist economy, The only thing that's really important is maximizing profit. And that's what they think fascism will do, will continue their ability to maximize profit. Now, the, the question that I think comes up, though, is while we're fighting fascism, which is a, you know, a political organization of society under capitalism, it's important for us to remember what our vision of this struggle is. Because our vision of this struggle is not just to defeat fascism. That's not enough because defeating fascism will only mean we'll go back to the so-called democracy that we live in now. And each and every one of you know, as well as I do, that the way society is organized now is detrimental to our health, detrimental to our community, and detrimental to our livelihoods. So that's not a viable vision for what we're fighting for. We want to stop fascism, but in the final analysis, we want to fight for a society where we eliminate poverty, you know, where, where there is no such thing as uh, people having to have insurance to get health care, that health care is a right for every person in this country. You know, we can have a society like that because we have the technological ability to provide that sort of society where no one will be hungry, no one will be without health care, All of the essentials of life are provided, not because we want to be charitable, because that's the way we can build a society that will eventually develop into a society without war, you know, a society without exploitation, and a society eventually without white supremacy. And that's the vision of the world that we want to build. And that's the vision of the world that we can organize ourselves to get. And my last point on this whole thing is, what will it take to get there? I think the most important thing that we have to do in this moment is to first and foremost, we have to organize ourselves and educate ourselves. Political education becomes the glue between our organizing efforts. We have to understand what capitalism is and be able to convey that to the people that we're working with on a day-to-day basis, every day we have to teach something and learn something you know that's part of this struggle because in the final analysis we should know that this movement that we're fighting is to at the minimum 70 percent intellectual what that means is that yes we have to fight on you have to daily fight but if that fight is not an educated fight it's not a fight that has a vision for the future that understands that our strategic goal is to eliminate capitalism from this world and create a basis for the development of a society, you know, where competition is eliminated and we can thrive together as a society. Some people call that socialism. While we're talking about socialism, I think it's important to mention that socialism is not a destination, y'all. It's a transition from capitalism to communism. And socialism is the, is the, area of intense struggle you know because we're going to have the reaction you know the counter of the bourgeois forces the ruling class forces during socialism we're going to have to fight to eliminate white supremacy and exploitation during that period of socialism so socialism is not a destination it is a transition period that we can set the basis for this future that we all desire and that we're fighting for and with that <clears throat> i will stop and turn it back over but thank you for having me and i've enjoyed and i will be around to enjoy the rest of this.
3: wow let's take a moment and just give jerome a big hand thank you so much i don't know about y'all but i am filled up jerome you've been a big hero of ours for a long time and we really appreciate you coming and kind of blessing the mic for us my name is josh poe i'm a tenant organizer with the root cause research center And this part of the presentation today, we're going to turn it over to some comrades that we work with. We decided to share this space with some of our comrades that have supported us or worked adjacent to us over the past year or so. And with that, the next person I want to introduce is Louisville Council person, Jacory Arthur. We're really proud of the relationship that we've developed with Jacory. We don't work with a lot of elected officials but we decided early on that we had the same a very similar self-interest around housing anti-displacement anti-gentrification and with that i will turn it over
4: peace and thank you so much i'm jacori councilman for louisville metro district four this little girl asleep on my chest is my daughter alia and you might hear my son apollo in the background every now and then my four-year-old We live in the Russell neighborhood. We are residents of Russell proudly living here. I'm originally from the Parkland neighborhood. And over the course of time, I've been working as a musician slash activist slash teacher to do everything I can to help the people around me from friends and family that I grew up with. And over the course of time, I realized it was going to take a lot more than just teaching about and singing about and rapping about issues. So I decided to run for office and here I am representing downtown Louisville and parts of the surrounding neighborhoods. You know, jumping on what Josh just said, it's important to realize that, in my opinion, and I hope in other elected officials' opinions, and I hope in your opinion, I do not work for government. I do not work for Louisville Metro government. I might work in government. I might work through government. But I do not work for government. I work for you. I work for the people on this call. I work for the people watching on Facebook. I work for the people in these photos uh, who are in various neighborhoods in the west end of Louisville the most black, beautiful, brilliant part of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And over the course of centuries, we've gone through so much as a people, even though we have contributed even more as a people, literally building this country, building the state, building this city that we're in. And even though we've contributed so much, we've been striving and fighting to live. We're still in 2022 under attack, whether we talk about modern day lynchings from police Uh, Whether we talk about political violence, economical violence, we are under attack constantly. It's something that I was very much so focused on as a musician and carrying into office is the idea of us having the right to remain in our neighborhoods. And I think one of the more modern approaches to this attack is not necessarily to, to come and physically attack you, but to attack you at your place of living. As you heard earlier we're constantly being priced out we're constantly being pushed out and displaced from our residents and if you can't afford a place to live it's almost like you can't afford to live there's nowhere for you to go except for being maybe unhoused in a junkyard incarcerated in a prison yard or dead in a graveyard and for a long time there's been so much work being done and people fighting to address this issue. And it seems like an excuse was always that we can't do anything in the state of Kentucky because Frankfurt holds the keys to power, until now. I'm proud to say that through collaborations with the Root Cause Research Center, through collaborations with residents, Smoketown, Russell, uh, Chickasaw, Parkland, Newburg, Berrytown, and so many neighborhoods in between, we are going to introduce an ordinance titled the Historically Black Neighborhoods Ordinance creating a new chapter of our local code of ordinances to address displacement. Now, this is important because it's a new chapter with all of the issues that have taken place in Louisville over the course of time. But it's also important to state that this is really a new approach that through our research, we haven't found in the state, in the region and in the country. Because usually when you talk about historical preservation, you're talking about preserving property. The purpose of this ordinance is to preserve the people who occupy that, pop- that property, who work in those areas, who play in those areas, who worship in those areas, who are in those areas, and for a long time really only had those areas to go. So we're hoping to recognize, retain, and restore historically Black neighborhoods. So let's walk through the ordinance, because uh, sometimes we get legislation filtered through mainstream media. The language you're about to see is directly from the ordinance itself. No cookie cutter. We're going to Dive in it, you know, look at some of the whereas clauses, the justification behind it, and then I have a call to action that I'd love for your help on. So, Black neighborhoods, as you know, over time have really been the only places that we could be, whether that's the only places we could afford economically, the only places we were allowed uh, through political violence known as segregation and Jim Crow. These were the places where we had the most belonging and had the most sense of belonging. But over time, these neighborhoods, have been destroyed because of gentrification, because of being priced out, because of targeted racism. We know that over time it's gotten worse. You know, the cost of living constantly rises, wages stay the same. If you look at living wages within Louisville, Kentucky, they're about twice the amount of the actual minimum wage, which is actually blocked at the state level. We as a city are looking at how this impacts residents, (laughs) in neighborhoods like Russell, Smoketown, (laughs) the Western and Louisville in general, Opportunity Zone areas that have been federally designated. And even though we know about the the cost rising in general, we often look at the way it impacts people and the numbers. So I wanna just go through a few different areas in two specific neighborhoods. Uh, This census track is in the Western part of the Russell neighborhood. In 2010, as you can see, overwhelmingly uh, black population. But when we get into 2020, that black population drop, And you might think, oh, that's only, you know, 7, 8%, but it equates to 495, almost 500 black people gone. Let's look at Smoketown on the other side of 9th Street, 2010, again, majority black. But when you fast forward to 2020, that population drops significantly. 566 black people gone. Jumping back to Russell, specifically where we have the, the Beecher Terrace development that just took place over the past few years, 2010, overwhelmingly Black. And here we are in 2020, significant changes. Almost 2,000 Black people gone. This is nothing new. Gentrification has been an issue in Louisville, and specific neighborhoods have changed over time since 1990. And just to contextualize how gentrification is slow and dangerous, I was born in 1992. So since I have been born over the course of my life, The neighborhoods you see listed have changed dramatically in terms of income levels, in terms of racial demographics. And local government has already gone on record through our housing needs assessment and said they have a role. They have a responsibility to make sure they are addressing the challenges of displacement. They even go as far as in our comprehensive plan from the same year that was implemented, saying that as neighborhoods evolve, they want to discourage displacement. And if you're from Louisville, you probably know that none of this has happened. That plan goes even as far as to say non-residential expansion should not happen unless there is some sort of demonstration it won't have an adverse impact on residents in that area. Government goes beyond that to say the resources they have from land and incentives have to be revised so that they're not displacing people. And that's where we come in. This was all realized in 2019, likely before, but it was on paper in 2019, And now here we are in 2022 just doing something about it because we have you, because we have a community of people organized to fight back. So when we recognize these neighborhoods, we're looking at boundaries that were really established when they were freedom colonies, when they were the only places people could go, freedmen going to these specific communities and creating a place called home. After we recognize these areas, we're going to retain these areas with a displacement assessment, looking at the rent around the specific neighborhood, looking at the incomes in the neighborhood, looking at the cost of materials that might get sold within that place, if it's a a retail center of some sort, a commercial parcel, that's important. Because if whatever development is being proposed does not pass that displacement assessment, Louisville Metro government will not support it. So if you can't afford it, we will not help that developer build it. And that goes for using our land, our property, our funding, and any other local incentives, and in some cases, even our employees. But we don't want to just be in a mode of blocking development. So what we're trying to do is make sure if we have the audacity to help developers get subsidized, we need to make sure that residents in those areas have the subsidies they need to develop their own homes. So we're going to codify a land return policy that allows people to file claims freely and openly file claims to get land back if their family lost it from some sort of historical injustice. Urban renewal, discriminatory practices, redlining, foreclosures. If your family lost it and Louisville Metro government or the former city of Louisville government, Jefferson County government was responsible, you can file a claim to get that land back, get that property back free of charge. Of course, if somebody's occupying it, we'll look for something comparable. Now, you all might be wondering, how the hell are we gonna get this passed? I've learned real quickly over the course of last year, being able to pass legislation like the Crown Act banning discrimination against natural hair, a reparations resolution that went to the desk of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris and congressional leadership, making sure that affordable housing money is earmarked for families at the lowest level of income. You can pass anything legal as long as you have 14 votes on the louisville metro council and the black caucus or districts one through seven of black elected officials are half of those votes but we can't do it without community every piece of legislation that we have introduced has had support behind it the crown act had two little black girls 11 and 12 who brought that to me who worked with me on that who actually spoke at the council meeting to advocate to get that passed you can provide feedback You can attend community meetings, you can share this ordinance with your friends and family, talk about the issue with them, ask your council member to co-sponsor, come and speak at a council meeting. You are very much so a part of the work that needs to be done in this city. And as I told you, we've known about this in writing through reports since at least 2019, and nothing has been done about it. No protections for you and your family. So if you want more information, if you wanna build with us to make sure this gets passed this year, LouisvilleKY.GLV slash District 4. You can sign up for our weekly e-news. You'll get a text, you'll get an email, and you can come and build with us. Because if we don't protect our neighborhoods, I don't think anybody else will. I appreciate y'all having me. Thank you, Jacory. Next, folks,
3: I'm not going to tell their story because they tell it wonderfully, uh, but we were really honored to get to work with the Bedford County Listening Project down in Shelbyville, Tennessee last year, who are doing some amazing housing organizing. I'm gonna turn it over to Kara Grimes and Stephanie Isaacs. Thank you all.
5: Hey everybody,
6: my name is Stephanie. Um, I'm with the Bedford County Listening Project. Um, I started it um, back in 2017. I also just wanna say it's such an honor to be on this call with all of y'all doing the good work. And now I'm gonna tell you a little bit about how we got started. And just to preface this, Shelbyville is a rule Southern small town nestled in Trump country. So back in 2017 there was a white supremacist rally. and I wanted to know why people like that thought it was okay to come here. The white supremacists were talking like Bernie Sanders saying everybody needed their you know needs met except people of color. So Kelly and I started door knocking to see what we could do to meet people's needs before they did. Door knocking began. We met a lot of folks. We did a lot of front porch sitting um substandard housing was everyone's complaint i met mothers who didn't have plumbing or working toilets i saw heartbreaking things that i couldn't shy away from Um, we created and gave renters door by door a community survey to fill out that focused on housing and rental challenges and we spoke to more than 230 renters We released our survey on City Hall in 2020. This survey showed that of those we gave it to, 94% of renters, especially with lower income, faced a myriad of issues finding safe and affordable housing. By empowering renters going after the city of Shelbyville and questioning our rights as renters, we have succeeded in in multiple ways. We had a renter vigil during the early onset of COVID to open discussion about evictions during the pandemic. We stopped more than 200 evictions during the pandemic by informing people of their rights and how to stand up for them. At the same time, we also targeted a major landlord in Shelbyville. And during the action taken, that landlord stopped illegally cutting power. We showed up and spoke out against an anti-refugee bill to stand with our Somalian neighbors. And we had several media hits um, where renters shared their stories. We are starting to be recognized across the country. And I was also elected to the city council in 2020 as a renter by renters. It showed that even in a Republican conservative dominant area, people care deeply about renter rights. By campaigning on a renter rights platform, people were motivated to take action and believe that change is possible when the solutions are based on our actual experiences and things that affect our everyday lives. And earlier this year, the BCLP won an improvement to the codes department where code violations have to be remedied before being closed, which was not the case previously. Y'all, people power matters. We cannot win this by ourselves. We must show up for our neighbors, all of our neighbors, and not let them divide us. And we know that everyone deserves affordable and safe housing. And now I'm gonna pass it on to Kara to talk about what we have going on now.
7: So as you heard, We are a group of renters here fighting for better rental rights and holding those accountable that should be helping and not hindering our community. I personally joined the BCLP because my landlord, who has left a hole in my ceiling since I've moved in and has not fixed it, which means when it rains, it rains in my bathroom, who has harassed me in the form of threats, evictions, and attempting to scare me off, needs to be held accountable for all of his actions. All of the landlords here need to be held accountable. The city needs to be held accountable. The BCLP has shown me there is strength in numbers, and we will gain power and win if we fight together. Right now, we are working on launching a campaign for a tenant bill of rights that will give renters the things we need and deserve. We as renters who know that we, do, we have issues that deserve change band together and created a bill of rights that includes safer housing, free from bugs, mold, and raining bathrooms such as mine. It gives us accommodations for disabilities, protections from illegal evictions, and retaliation. These are things that should be included as these are basic human rights that, like, we deserve. (laughs) We should not feel as though we have to be rewarded for good behavior. This holds those accountable that are stripping us from living safely in our community, as well as puts our elected officials on the spot to openly say whether they agree that we as tenants deserve these rights. To keep up with our work, or if you're a renter who needs help, you can find us on Facebook by searching the Bedford County Listening Project and check out our website. Our website is thebedfordcountylp.org. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Stephanie and Kara. Love what you're all doing down in Bedford County. Next comrade asking to come up is Rebecca Ward from Clove the West. And we really want to highlight our mutual aid partners in these spaces. Thank you, Rebecca.
8: Hello, you all. Thank you all for having me. I am Rebecca Ward, and I am the creator and founder of Clothe the West. And what Clothe the West is, is a mutual aid organization that provides folks in the community free new essentials just because. Um, We believe that folks deserve new items without having to fill out a whole bunch of Paperwork or having to meet criteria, so we remove that barrier and we pop up in the West End of Louisville, and we provide whoever sh- provides stuff to folks whoever shows up. Um, and we pop up in the West End because that's the best end. And I um originally I came from um the West End Thirty Second in Kentucky, and so the West End holds a special place in my heart. And so we pop up there, but will serve folks who come from anywhere and we started in 2000 during the uprising and folks especially white folks were like gung-ho wanted to help wanted to get involved and then folks went back to business as usual but there was still a need that needed to be met and so, Cold the West has still been meeting that need, and we are thriving. We are thriving, even though folks went back to business as usual, um, and that is upsetting. But I call folks out as much as possible. We are not a nonprofit. We are not um, a LLC. That's also what sets us apart in how we serve. Um, we do have a physical sponsor um, at the moment, and our goal is to become a nonprofit in the future but right now we thrive off community support and donations from the community so that we can serve the community. And so our goal is to continue to serve the community. If folks reach out to us and we have something that we can provide for them, we take that to them. We don't ask a whole bunch of questions because I think that's important. I don't think people should have to tell their story in order to be served. I don't think that I need to know somebody's trauma in order to provide them with something. So that's super important to us. We also do fundraisers and stuff like that. We have a fundraiser coming up that's called Egg My Yard. And so we will take eggs to folks' yards and the Easter Bunny. And so that's super dope. We are um, starting an initiative to deliver fresh flowers to folks in the West End. Whoever shows up, uh, I mean, whoever reaches out to us and says they want fresh flowers, we will. I will bring them to them um, because... People deserve fresh flowers, and that's important. And we are starting a birthday initiative as well where um, folks reach out to us because people deserve to be celebrated. No matter where they are and what walks of life they're in, um, people have birthdays, and that's important, and people deserve to be celebrated. So we'll be delivering cakes and stuff like that to folks. So connect with us on social media. If you have an event, we will definitely pop up. If you need us to pop up, um, we'll bring whatever we have or whatever fits the event. Again, um, my name is Rebecca Ward, Support Club the West. Thank you all so much for having me. Thank
3: you, Rebecca. With that, the next group we've asked to step up and present is the HBN Assembly and Martina Konecki is gonna be representing them.
9: Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me today. Thanks to Root Cause Research Center for staging this event. Let me first say that I first became aware of Root Cause when I started reading their work regarding tenants' rights, displacement, and that sort of thing. And then with the birth of the historically Black Neighborhood initiative, I was really drawn in. I'm president of an organization called Neighborhood Planning and Preservation. We've been advocating for neighborhoods all over metro, all over the metro district since 2003. And I was glad that Jacory brought up the issue of preservation. We're often demonized as preservationists. People forget our name as neighborhood planning and preservation. And people also forget that in 2003, we attempted to make the Russell uh, neighborhood a historic preservation district. We worked with the community uh, our neighborhood association at that time to get the signatures. We raised the money. The money is still being held by Metro Louisville, and that's an interesting story how that was blocked. So the creation of the Historically Black Neighborhood Initiative was very intriguing to me because of my work with West End communities in general, also because I'm a child of California. I currently live in the Shawnee area. Once the TIF initiative started rolling down the hill, I reached out to HBNA to ask them for assistance or at least a talk about what this TIF was going to mean. Under the auspices of MPP, we've been fighting TIFs for years and all sorts of tax abatement scholarships if you will to the large development community so i was so pleased to join the assembly as a resident but then also to join with the assembly to entice other communities to join with us to fight the west end TIF. We've made some accomplishments over the last year. We have raised public awareness about problems with the way the law was passed. It was passed shortly before midnight, the very last day that the legislation was going to be in session with no public input on the front end and a concerted effort to keep people clueless until it was passed fighting the TIF is like a lot of the battles that MPP has fought over the years first of all you're told it's a done deal you are faced with the barrier of folks who look like you and sound like you. They know the lingo but they do not have the same objectives in mind. I was so happy to hear Jaipori talk about how he works for us and not for the government and unfortunately that is not a sentiment that's held by our public officials and by the network that supports them. They believe we work for them They believe they can, in our name, acquire grants, acquire large amounts of funds to do what they want. Displacement has always been an issue in the black community. Those of us of African descent know that we were brought to this country for the purpose of making a profit off our backs and that we were never allowed to have a home of our own that we could declare our own. Someone in the chat asked, Well, what about desegregating neighborhoods? How can you desegregate neighborhoods if you don't displace? Well, I'm going to leave you all with this. No one ever says, let's run to the East End and desegregate all those neighborhoods to make things better. There is nothing wrong with neighborhoods that are predominantly black, predominantly poor, predominantly whatever. What is wrong is that we have allowed the folks who work for us, we have allowed the systems that they perpetuate, to make things difficult for the folks that historically have never been able to get any further than they are. So with that, I'm going to thank Root Cause Research again for allowing me to participate today. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Martina. That was great. The next person that's coming up, we have had a real pleasure to organize with over the past year. And I want to personally thank them for their mentorship and their commitment to principles around organizing. And I'd like to introduce Talisha Wilson with the No LMPD campaign.
10: Hey, everybody. Yes, Tala or Talisha. I am a community organizer and activist and nonprofit. All things community led is what I am involved in. You want to learn more about what I do personally and kind of the work that I do, just visit TalishaWilson.com. Let's talk a little bit about the no LMPD campaign. So we started this campaign with the idea of defunding LMPD, Right. But how do you do that? How do we make that happen? What has to go into that? Right. There's this whole entire process. That is very much I don't understand as well as I would like to, and that lets me know that a lot of other people may not understand either. But there's all of these steps that we have to take before we can even get to a conversation of defund, right? Get to a conversation where those there are actionable items that happen to actually defund LMPD. Before you defund LMPD, you need to know what is happening with LMPD. So we started this campaign, me alongside uh, RCRC and. Um, some other people in the community we created the no lmpd campaign to learn about who is lmpd what do they do why are we asking for them to be defunded why are we asking for them to be accountable right and so we started with the help of some council people started the separating the budget campaign right now the little the city budget is addressed as a whole and so within the budget committee of the Metro Council members, the budget committee, they address everything separately in line by line. But when it is taken to the rest of the council members, it is addressed as a whole city budget, which means that if you defund or take away money from LMPD, you're also taking away money from libraries, from housing, from uh, parks and recreation, from public health, all the essential needs, all the essential things that we need. And so by separating the budget, LMPD's budget from the rest of the city's budget, we're able to address that as its own separate entity and give it the scrutiny that it deserves without holding back these other essential departments from getting the resources that they need. And so we are calling on Bill Hollander, who is the chair of the budget committee, we are asking him we are asking him to bring separating the budget to the budget committee so that it can be separated and then remain separated after it goes to the full council. And the way that you can support that is by signing our petition which outlines all of what I said in more detail. And you can also send a letter to Bill Hollander. We'll have more information coming out about that in the next few days. And then you can organize with us, come to the table with us, because something that I think is unique about our campaign is that we're learning together. None of us know all of the information and we're all learning as time uh, as time progresses, and that's something that I absolutely think is essential to any type of abolition work, any type of movement work, any type of organizing work. So, if you would like to learn more about No LMPD, you can visit our IG page, which is No LMPD. And what we mean by No is it is No, as in No. Who LMPD is. Know where their money is going. Know the number of liabilities, the amount of money and liabilities they have had to pay out. Know everything about them so that we can know how to defund them, how to abolish them, right? Because I am an abolitionist, so my goal, my personal goal is to like get rid of it all, right? But know who LMPD is, but also no LMPD because no policing because what we know is that policing does not do anything besides harm marginalized people and communities, specifically black communities, specifically um, poor communities, right? And so no LMPD K capital NO lowercase w lmpd on all social media. And yeah, and if you want to learn more about the campaign specifically, we definitely invite you to the table.
3: Thank you, Tala. (laughs) No problem. And moving along, uh, we were really thrilled that we got to organize this year. We just started organizing for real alongside the PSL chapter of Louisville, who I believe just got a chaptership established. And so they are here today represented by Greg Capillo.
11: I know we've been going long, so I won't be super, super long. But yeah, so we have a full chapter in Louisville and we are a Marxist-Leninist party who just really looks at the landscape of what's happening right now and doesn't see any real voice for working people um, or a multinational party. And so, yeah, we don't really see, you know, really a, a, uh, we see that working people of all races and, and demographics are excluded from the process. And so the project we see in front of us is building power for working class people by organizing direct action. Specifically, we're you know partnering with Root Cause to help them in their tenant organizing. My day job outside of being a communist is working with unhoused folks at a homeless shelter doing housing navigation. And I think one of the really key takeaways from that and from also from our organizing work is that, you know, we have this desperate need to only view housing as a commodity and only view it in the way that it can generate a profit for someone and really it needs to be regarded as a social need and so the other like major problem is that landlords have all of the power you know you read these giant nonprofit reports where people like scratch their head about fair housing and impediments to access and all this stuff. But then, you know, nobody really like talks about, you know, like enforcing the law against landlords. And that's to us what that means is that that's a question of power. And the only way that, that gets rectified is through organizing. So I'm really super glad that I'm able to leave work and work with Josh and Root Cause because, because Yeah, if we're not doing anything to fundamentally put something on the other scale of that, there there just won't be any kind of meaningful change. So you can find out more about the party at PSLweb.org. And if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Just feel free to message Josh or Jessica and get my contact information. I'd love to talk to anybody who's um, interested in more about what we do. Thanks for having us.
3: Thank you so much, Greg. Love you all. And we're moving right along. Uh, The next folks we're going to introduce are some really dope lawyers that work here in Louisville. We don't always get to work with lawyers. We hear the term movement lawyer a lot, but I don't know that we see really good examples of it. However, this next law firm is a good example of what movement lawyering is. And they are here today represented by Kelly Perry Johnson.
5: Hi there. Thank you so much for having us today. I'm just completely in awe of the work that all of these organizers and activists are doing. I am one of the partners with uh, Reese Syed Perry Johnson. There's only three of us. It's myself, Jeremiah Reese, and Soha Sayed. but they couldn't be here today, unfortunately. Um, we were founded in 2020, in fall of 2020, with the idea that lawyers should and can be pursuing work that supports abolitionist principles. And so we aim to perform legal work that is actively anti-racist, anti-fascist, anti-capitalist. The primary bulk of the legal work that we do is actually for plaintiff's employment discrimination. So we primarily represent employees in all types of discrimination suits, such as sexual harassment, race discrimination, sexual orientation discrimination, um, trans discrimination. We also do um, wage theft, against employers or retaliation claims, um, disability discrimination, anything that kind of falls under that umbrella. We absolutely, under no circumstances, represent businesses or companies. We also do civil rights work, and that's what you would expect it to be as far as police brutality cases or issues um, over with incarceration, um, things that have happened to incarcerated people. What brings us here today and what's connected us to Root Cause Research Center is actually that we want to do work behind the scenes, um, legal work to support activists and organizers. So specifically, we connected with Root Cause um, regarding the West End TIF, and we are working to provide pro bono legal work to the incredible and courageous work that all of the local organizers are doing to stop the West End TIF. That's something we are definitely interested in pursuing, and if your organization thinks they need some behind the scenes legal work, if it's something that we can do, um, something we have the resources for and aligns, we are absolutely happy to talk with you. Thank you again so much for having us. I'm just completely honored to be here amongst all of you. And if there's anything we can do to help, please don't hesitate to reach out.
0: And that is about all the time we have for today here on truth to power. Thank you so much for tuning in. You have been hearing the first of a two-part series. We're going to bring you the second half on next week's Truth to Power. This was the second annual Community Research Expo organized by the Root Cause Research Center here in Louisville, Kentucky. And their second annual expo was on February 26. and it has been such a delight to bring you the full program And tune in again next week when it continues and we are going to hear from a few more activists from around the state, but then also this year's community researchers, Mariel Garter, Join A. Woodward, and Woody Pryor. You won't want to miss it. So uh, we'll see you again next week here on Truth to Power on Forward Radio. Be well, my friends.